You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, I appreciate you being here. This is the third of five lessons here on the atonement, what it is. Hopefully, we can better understand this. It is something that has obviously been part of our lives in one way or another as Christians. And what I hope that this series will do is just sort of clarify some of the things that Scripture, some of the things our devotion, some of the things that theology has said about this. Why is this so significant? Why is this so central? And as you know, we just completed the Easter week, and we know that uh, the cross and the resurrection is the very reason why there's a Christian faith to begin with. I started off with this very famous painting uh, from uh, Matthias Gunrod about Christ on the cross, and it's a very significant statement, I think, about what, what what the church says happened there on the cross, that something was of such magnitude that it cost a person's life. Of course, this is an artistic interpretation. Now, whether it was actually that way or not, we don't know. But we do know it was a costly thing, and something happened there. And Grunwald's you know, very famous interpretation of this is that by his death, we are healed. By what happened there at the cross, we've been reconciled and justified to God. Uh, I made a couple of points that I want to reiterate again, especially in a lot of what we were just saying, is that uh, there's a multifaceted reality to the atonement. That is, it is so big, it is so transcendent, it is so all-encompassing and comprehensive that it represents the full range of the Creator's intention to restore us. There's no one way that our mind, our, our, our literature, can capture all of it in one way. Much like a diamond that's been cut in various sizes, uh, I mean sh- shapes, you can you know look around it and light reflects off and same same diamond but reflects light in different ways. Same atonement, same justification, same reconciliation with God. But we understand it in multiple ways, and I think to appreciate the multiple ways by which we understand it is a better recognition of the great mystery, the great comprehensive transcendent experience that happened there on the cross. And so, the scriptures talk about it in various ways, and what I'm doing here is trying to understand some theological doctrines, how theologians talked about this. And the first session I did was on the the satisfaction theory, the penal satisfaction, if you remember that from the great theologian Anselm of Canterbury. And then what I did on the second lesson was about how Christ is our uh, ransom from death and the devil that Christ came and rescued us. And today I'm going to talk about another theory and it's called the moral persuasion or the example theory. Uh, Each of these represent a picture, so to speak, a metaphor. It puts the atonement of Christ within sort of a, a visual image of things. And when I talked about Anselm, the basic metaphor of that is a courtroom. Some of you are lawyers, I suspect. That is, you have somebody guilty, they're tried, they're pronounced, and they're punished. We're guilty, we're sinners, we're tried before God, we are owed God a debt, and Christ pays that debt. That makes perfectly good sense, and there's, there's scripture that supports that idea. And then after that, we looked at how Christ ransoms us from death and the devil. Here, the basic metaphor is rescue. 
Like we're behind the enemy lines. We're trapped. Someone has to come and get us. We cannot liberate ourselves. And that's exactly what Christ has done. No one's going to escape the power of death. No one's going to escape the work of the evil one. We all suffer these things. In a sense, we're behind enemy lines. And Christ has come and rescued us. Today, I'm going to talk about another kind of model, metaphor, concept, or picture to think about that. And that's in the terms of romance. That our hearts yearn to, for intimacy, for completion, for fulfillment. We want union with something. We're designed to be in harmony with others, with God and the world. But something has happened. Something has broken the heart, so to speak. And so this metaphor becomes the sort of dominant picture and the appealing picture, too, I think, of what we're going to see here as Christ as our example. And I'll talk about those other metaphors when we get to them. Bear with me for just a second. Christ is our example. The moral persuasion theory of atonement. Uh, when we put together these various theories, doctrines of atonement, the five of them, we see that some of them emphasize the objective act of it. The two that we have already looked at does that. That is, Christ paid our debt. Whether you believe it or know it or not, Christ paid your debt. Christ has come and rescued us. We couldn't do it ourselves. Whether we're aware of it or not, Christ has defeated death and the devil itself. But there's also the subjective element in the doctrine of the atonement. That is, it affects us. It changes us. We should be different. Some way or another, our hearts are drawn towards God. The subjective element represents our response, how this has actually changed us. Not just how God relates to us, but how we relate to God. And what we're talking about today, this moral persuasion of theory, emphasizes that, the subjective element to the doctrine of atonement. Now, throughout all of Scripture, I think, we can find sort of allusions, reference to the idea that we are drawn to God because of God's love, because of God's tremendous compassion, affection for us. We're drawn to God as a, as a lover is drawn to the power of love. Just a few passages here. First of all, the one there in John chapter 5, verse 6, where... Um, <clears throat> Uh, what, actually, I'll start with verse 2. Now, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew, Bethzatha, which has five porticles. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? Or another way to translate that word is whole. Do you want to experience completion? Do you want fulfillment? Do you want your heart, your body, to experience what they were designed to? And he asked this man this, and Christ offers it to him. He heals him. Here Christ brings us wholeness. We're incomplete. Our hearts are restless, as Augustine said, until they find rest in God. And so here the great example of Christ's compassion draws our hearts towards God. Also, still in the, uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Starting verse 13. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. Christ is not necessarily this dominating, kingly-like figure over us. Christ is not this indifferent, uh, 
cruel, or, I mean, cold uh, monarch that rules over us. Christ is a friend. Christ is intimate. Christ knows us better than we know ourselves. Our hearts are naturally drawn towards such a friendship as this. That God gives of who God is because God wants to be our friend. So whom, to whom will you mostly give your heart? Someone who appreciates you for a friend or someone who wants you to be just subservient? Well, I, this whole notion of the moral persuasion is that it tries to represent what it means to say Christ is our friend. And then uh, in the book of Hebrews... One second. Chapter 4, starting verse 9. So then, a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from His. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. That is, we should make an effort. We should... Take the, the, the intentional actions to be in love with God. That God elicits this from us, and as the writer of Hebrews says, God offers us a Sabbath rest. Like the seventh day is the fulfillment of the six prior days. The Sabbath rest of God with creation is the reason and the purpose there is a creation. And so it's offered all of us in Christ. The Sabbath rest. You can be who you are. Complete, fulfilled, redeemed, reconciled, atoned with God by coming in into the Sabbath. So it's, there's, a, what, there's an attraction, there's a, a winsomeness, there's a beauty to this that draws us into this Sabbath rest with God. So, and, I, and I think we could find many, many more references in the Scriptures that refer to this, that we're drawn to God, and we find our fulfillment and salvation in this relationship to God. And here are three wonderful hymns. In my opinion, there are, there are many that are as good, but none better than these three hymns. And they do uh, communicate this notion that here is Christ, our example, who draws our hearts towards them. One of my favorite hymns, uh, one time I wrote a little treatise on something to, to be shared with those. What, what are my five favorite hymns? And this is one of my five favorite. When I survey the wondrous cross by the great hymn writer Isaac Watt, you know this, this stanza, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When we look upon the cross, we feel this drawn, this contagious sort of pull to bring our hearts. And then this uh, great hymn by Charles Wesley, Love, divine, all love, excelling. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. We're lost in the wonder and praise and love of God. To look upon God in the sense we lose ourselves. We become, not substantively, not metaphysically one, but we become one in hearts. And I do think that's true. I've had those experiences. I suspect you've had in your own way. Some sense of union like lovers of heart to heart. And then that other great hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. 
Well, we could find many other hymns. These are just three that represent this is part of our devotional life as Christians. We know this, that God is not just this kind of abstract, utterly removed, unknowable thing, even though God is always greater than what we can know. But God is also this lover that draws us to God. God is a compassionate God whose heart is big enough to bring in all of creation and to realize that it brings out the best in us. I really do think that. That's so much part of our devotional life. All right, with that said then, uh, I want to you know, emphasize this, that this role of moral persuasion, as Christ is our example, is part of our Christian faith. Just as what we saw in the other two lessons, that is, Christ really has paid our debt. We're in a courtroom. I'm guilty. How am I going to be redeemed? Someone has to pay my debt. I'm lost. I'm behind enemy lines. Who's going to rescue me? Rescue me. Christ has done that. My heart is restless. It needs fulfillment and something that loves me. None of us can be totally self-sufficient and self-satisfied. You know, None of us can you know, make of ourselves totally what we ought to be. It's only in the great heart of God that we can find that. And so God draws us to God's self in this way. So I think this is obviously part of it. And it's, as I'm going to, as I've argued and I will argue again, we shouldn't say this is the only way. Now, I, I'm going to be adamant about this. I suspect some people might really object to what I'm saying. If one thinks there's only one way to think about atonement, just one doctrine, one theology to satisfy what that means, then you're missing the full scope and mystery of the atonement. A way by which we can come to a greater understanding of the comprehensiveness of the atonement of Christ is to have an appreciation of these multiple ways to account for it. I'm arguing here that Christ as our example is a way to do it. It's just not the only way. Now I'm going to come back to that notion a little bit later. All right. Uh, now I want to talk about a couple of theologians who uh, wrote a lot, very insignificant people, in fact, unbelievably significant people, who uh, wrote about Christ as our example, the moral persuasion of atonement. And perhaps, even though the idea had been around for a long time, but the one who really championed it to be, unfortunately, in his, his own mind, the supreme and only really legitimate doctrine of atonement was this uh, guy named Abelard. Uh, you may have heard of Abelard. Um, he, that's a statue of him over the left. Um, he there lived in the 12th century. Uh, he was one of the great intellectuals, by the way, of the 12th century. He was a logician. In fact, he formulated some logical theories that are still very much used today. Uh, he uh, was a tremendous lecturer. Uh, it was said of him that hundreds of people would come from all over Europe to listen to his lectures. Uh, but to teach at a university in those days, you had to be single, celibate. You didn't have to be a priest or a monk, but if you were teaching, you had to be single. And he was teaching, and he fell in love with a girl named Heloise. And for those who are not trained in the theology of Abelard, that's what he's most known for, letters to Heloise. And you can go to most bookstores or libraries, and there will be a book about the letters of Abelard and Heloise. And they fell in love with one another. And uh, Heloise had a very famous, powerful uncle named Bernard, uh, who was a legitimate theologian in his right. He was a Franciscan. And when he heard that Abelard, who was supposed to be celibate, had sort of defiled his niece, uh, he uh, it was a cruel time. Uh, he had Abelard emasculated. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, 
uh, at that point then, Abelard decided to become a monk. <laughs> <And> <laughs> he um, he joined the monastery for a while, uh, stayed there for a couple of years, and realized that his heart was really back in teaching, so he went back to the university. But they kept a, quote, platonic relationship all those years with one another. And so it was a genuine, sincere relationship that they had. And when they were buried, they were buried next to each other. That's in a cemetery there in Paris. I've not seen it, but... It's a very famous painting of them there, buried next to each other, Abelard and Heloise. Well, here are a few things, though, about Abelard. This is perhaps uh, the, the best quote that represents uh, what he understood as Christ as our example. And it's from a commentary that he wrote in the Book of Romans. Uh, every man, woman, every person is made more just that is more loving towards God after the passion of Christ than he had been before because people are incited to love by benefit actually received more than by one had hoped for. Not owned, but one had hoped for. That is, what Abelard is arguing is that we experience more benefit by someone that loves us more than we can hope to be loved. We all hope to be loved. But in Christ, Christ loves us more than we can understand, can fathom. And this is what changes us. It changes us from the inside, according to Abelard. And this is really what constitutes salvation. This is entirely a subjective understanding of it. Abelard dismissed Anselm, who was about a generation prior or so, to uh, Abelard. He rejected that notion of the penal substitution, the courtroom metaphor, and he adopts this romantic metaphor. That this really accounts for what changes a person. Until you show the real change in your life, you're not really atoned. Until you really show that there are fruits of the Spirit in your life, you're not really having the Spirit, according to Abelard. And so, what accounts for that? When do we know we are really showing the work of the Holy Spirit in our life? When the individual's heart is merged with God's heart. Now, this is an emphasis on the individual, on you as a person, not the corporate body, not all of humanity. And those other theories that we saw, Anselm and then the rescue theory, uh, it referred to all of humanity. It's a very corporate understanding. But here, though, this moral persuasion account is about us individually, what changes us. Now, quite honestly, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've shared this one way or another. I'm, I'm a child of a Baptist pastor. I grew up at revivals. Uh, you may have done the same. I sang all those great revival hymns. That's very much still part of me. Very much. I'm not ashamed of it at all. Uh, and so the emphasis was that you have to make your profession of faith. You've got to come to the altar call. You have to show the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have to act like you're saved. Well, that's exactly what Abelard is saying. And I think he's right about that. I think it is. This is part of it, not all of it. But this is part of what it means to be atoned. That is, our lives are changed. What changes it? And the big principle that he, reply, he relies upon is the second one there. Love begets love. You don't just love without an object of love. You love something. And God here is that love that begets love out of us. In fact, we wouldn't even know how to love God if God had not first loved us. We wouldn't even know how to rightly relate to God, how to open up our hearts to be intimate, how to direct our thoughts and our wills and our affections, if God hadn't already done that toward us. And so love begets love. And again, I think that makes perfectly good sense. 
it definitely, I think, represents and encapsulates so much of our human experience, incorporates what it means for us to rightly respond to what God has done, that if we really are atoned, shouldn't it also affect the way we live? Now, Abelard, in order to understand it, and this is where he becomes a little more controversial, I think, for many people, um, though I still think there is something to be learned from it. This is all based upon sort of three stages, and he uses the word of mysticism to account for this. The three stages. That is, we live a life, we're lonely, our hearts are restless, they're not fulfilled. And then all of a sudden, something illuminates love to us, shows itself to us, like love at first sight, so to speak. That is, we're looking for something, we cannot find it, and all of a sudden the lights come on and then we see what we need. God here illuminates the love of Christ to us, shines it out. Now we begin to see what we have been looking for. There's excitement about that. That is, we are last finding the hope, the, the intimacy, the affections that we've needed. We're excited by the cross of Christ. When we see the love of God poured out upon us, it arouses us to go and do something about it. And so we begin to show the love back to God. According to Abelard, love begets love. It starts with God's love, but we give that love back. And when that happens, we reach this third point of unification. That is, as I said, the romantic model is based on this idea of two hearts merging in one in love. Well, what Abelard felt is that it's possible for us to become one with God, not that we become God, but that our hearts become one with God. One with God. And again, I, I, I think there's some truth to this. Uh, I've, I've, I've read enough about mysticism. I've had my, I guess, mystical experiences. I've had those moments, and maybe you have too, and you're just caught up into it. And you feel like there's such clarity to this experience. There's such reason and purpose and focus to what's going on that at last my heart has found that which it yearns for most deeply, and there's a sense of oneness that nothing can take that away. Now, of course, it doesn't last all the time. We're fickle, we're fragile, we're flippant, all those. And so oh, our hearts cannot stay that, set, that focus, that, that tenacious on the love of God, but we do have these. And Abelard is trying to give an account for that. And again, I think there's some truth to this. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Well, hold on. I'll bring up some critiques about this in just a minute. But I do want to think and make a claim that uh, there's something to be learned from this. Something to be learned. And aren't, aren't we glad that God has touched our hearts? That atonement is not just something we view, speculate on, but it's something we feel that we have in us. Aren't we glad of that? In some ways, that's what it means to be a new creature. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5. New creature. I'm not the old person. My heart has been healed. It's been fulfilled. That I'm now walking in illumination and excitement because I've been unified with God. I think that is obviously true. All right, another representative of the moral persuasion theory is this very, very significant 19th century theologian somewhat philosophical theologian named Friedrich Schleimacher uh, taught at uh, University of Berlin for a number of years. Uh, he wrote some very significant stuff. Uh, the book that I'm going to quote from is called The Christian Faith, and I've read it. I've, I've studied it very carefully. 
Uh, it's wonderfully written. It's really imaginative, very, very creative. And I learned from it. Is it infallible? Of course not. Is it the only way to say it? Of course not. Is it my way of saying it? No. Uh, but can I learn from it? And the answer is yes, I have. And Slomarker, as you see, uh, quite dramatically opposed there, but uh, you can go to the University of Berlin and see that bust of him there. He is that significant. It was said during his heyday there at the University of Berlin, and there were some other equally influential intellectuals there. If you've ever heard of the German philosopher named Hegel, he was just down the hall. Uh, so it was in some ways you could argue that it was the intellectual center of the Western world. Well, uh, it was said that hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world just would come to just hear him lecture. Uh, and he had a certain take. Sorry? Was he a pastor as well? Did he have church? You know, I do not know that. I really do not know. Uh, okay, here's a, a quote that I think it represents what he thinks about the moral persuasion theory. The Redeemer assumes believers into the power of his God consciousness, and this is his redemptive activity. Now, Slomarker, as I said, is very innovative and creative. Uh, he uh, was in uh, Germany when there was a, a large sort of tide against Christianity, in particular the more traditional aspects of it, the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran parts, seeing it as sort of a ossified institution, uh, more concerned with conformity than true individual expression. And so he wants to make Christianity defensible to a very skeptical age. He wants to try to show that there's something actually great going on about Christianity that you don't understand because you're, you're not seeing it. And so he saw his mission, in a sense, as an apologist for Christianity to a skeptical age. And he did it by in basically redefining Christianity. He basically redefined it. For instance, most of us would say faith is what one's commitment to God, one's heart orientation to God. It's my belief in God, in Christ. I have faith because I have been arrested by the redemptive act of God and I've given my heart. Well, Schleimacher felt that there in 19th century Germany, the intellectual class had rejected that, seeing that as antiquated and maybe even superstitious to say something like that. So what he wanted to do is that he redefined the notion of faith as the feeling of absolute dependence. The feeling of absolute dependence. That's what faith is all about. Faith is when you find that which you are willing to give all of your life, your past, your present, your future, your memories, your hopes, your aspirations, your wants, your desires, your identity. You give it all to God where you're absolutely dependent upon God, according to Slamarker, is really what faith is all about. He says we get through that through a process that you have to mature to get to that. You just don't have it. You don't. It doesn't come easily either. We have to kind of work our way into that kind of faith because we start off with, he says, what he calls animal consciousness. That is, we're just conscious of the outside world. I guess like animals may be or infants or toddlers, just aware of the outside world. And then through a period of experiences and reflection, you begin to see yourself as a self in the world. And that's what he called the second stage there of self-consciousness. And that's the adult stage. 
and the more self-conscious. Now, of course, that can have a negative connotation for us as well. People who worry about themselves too much or a little insecure or uncertain of themselves or a little overly self-conscious. But in a way, though, it refers to a mature understanding of who I am. Not you, but me. Not them, but us. Who we are in relationship to the world. That's a developed sense of self-consciousness. But he said there's, there's so much more that we can possibly experience in the world that our hearts are, and minds are big enough to move beyond just self-consciousness, but the loss of self in God. And that's what he called the feeling of absolute dependence. This is the highest achievement that we can have as people, to come to a realization that my consciousness is really now one with that supreme universal consciousness of all things, which we'll call God. That's when we are at our best. With that notion, then, what Slamacher does is that he rethinks the Christian notion of atonement in light of that. That is, if that's really what's going on when we are redeemed, reconciled, atoned, saved, that is, we come to this feeling of absolute dependence, then what should we understand about all what the Scriptures say and all what our devotional life say, uh, says about uh, atonement? And he basically dismissed it all. Penal substitution, the rescue theory, all those he felt like were antiquated, ancient ways that don't really experience what goes on. And it's those doctrines that are uh, tripping up the modern skeptical world. Those doctrines no one can really buy into because they're not sophisticated, they're not informed by psychology and science. These notions of, you know, I'm guilty and Christ pays my debt is... Is, is an ancient viewpoint. We modern people are more attuned to ourselves. I mean, in some ways, what he said then in early part of the 19th century is very much part of what's being said today in the 21st century. And so we need to reinterpret all this in terms of this kind of mystical quest for unity, for oneness with things, for happiness. And so he looks at all the scriptures teaching, theological reflections on the doctrine of atonement, and turns it into this that Christ sets people free to fulfill their highest state. Salvation is for you. It's for me. It's for you to find your feeling of absolute dependence. It's for you to find that mystical union that really brings completeness and fulfillment to your life. And Slamacher, you know, felt that is really what the doctrine of atonement is about. All right, I'm going to hold off to make a critical comment about that in just a second. But uh, before I move on, any questions about Abelard or Slamacher? Anyone? Maslow. Yeah. Well, Maslow is 20th century. Well, you're right. There, there's some. There's something to that. It, you, you probably run across Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, it permeates so much of our society. It's the basic design of marketing. Probably. You know, I was thinking of hierarchy when you started this whole talk because, you know, we hear a lot around here about Christ is an example uh, for, you know, of showing God's love, but it's so much more and beyond that. You know, we yeah. needed a rescue. We needed to be redeemed. So to me, and I was going to ask you, if hier- it seems hierarchy-wise that this understanding of atonement just doesn't quite get it to its fullest. It, it, it cannot get it by itself. Yeah. And what I'm working hard to say, it expresses something. Yeah. 
And the more we know about how that is expressed, I think the deeper our, our subjective response to the objective reality of the atonement can be. Uh, but I do think those people who argue that this should be the only way by which we think of this are missing, once again, the great power and mystery of atonement to begin with. Yes? I was just going to say the danger is the interpretation, right? Right, right. Maybe yeah. people say to have absolute dependence on God, you need to drop everything and start doing all these deeds to get to heaven. I right. Well, right. And, and see, here's the point. You know, as I started off today, the doctrine of atonement has two poles to it, objective and subjective. Both are valid. They're a little different. Kind of talk about them in different ways. But each is necessary. The subjective aspect is right. What he is saying here about growing towards God is absolutely right. But if you only emphasize that, all of the objective reality becomes almost secondary. Yes? Quick question. Um, was he the one then that... Uh, or that philosophy said that uh, Constantine was, was it Constantine or Augustine? Who was in 324? Constantine. Council of Nicaea. Right. Was he, they just discounted that whole... Um, oh yeah, yeah. Slamacher had, I don't know if he ever even took seriously the Nicene Creed, come to think of it. I don't recollect it. And definitely he wouldn't take seriously the language that was used. You know, co-substantial, co-eternal. God of the Old Testament was a different God than the Right, right, he did. Uh, he, he very much did. Yep. All right, let me bring this to a conclusion. We've already touched on some of this. First of all, let's now talk about some of the weaknesses of this particular theory. And I think there are some that we need to be aware of. That is, in emphasizing the subjective, it may de-emphasize the objective. Just about me. Just about what benefits I get. Now, in theology... Uh, we make a distinction uh, between what's called the economical trinity and the imminent trinity. You ever heard those words, Gil? You remember economic trinity and imminent trinity. The word economics, as it is used there, don't, don't think currency and finance, but think of process, the economy of something. We use that word often, the economy of the meeting or something, the process of something. And that is what you know of God is or the benefits of God. And that's all we know, just the benefits of God. An economic trinity is that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but only known in the great rewards and acts and pleasures and benefits that we get from God. And that's all we can know, just what we know. Well, that's a subjective element. Now, the idea of the imminent trinity is that God is, in essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, regardless of whether I know the benefits of God or not. That God's very being is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not that God is beyond what the church says as the triune God, but that's the reality of God. Well, in this moral persuasion theory, such talk is irrelevant, not only secondary, but confusing. And so it's best to sort of drop that language and just talk about the economic trinity, the benefits that God gives us. Well, that's wrong to do so. I, I think it's gravely wrong to do so. Also, often too dependent on the state of the person. There are some days, and I know you would probably say it in your own way, what I'm about to say, I have been lifted up into the third heaven, so to speak. I have had those wonderful experiences. Easter was an ecstatic experience for me. I, I just love it. I just love it. And then other days, I'm an absolute wreck. 
I'm a jerk. I'm, I'm confused. I'm, I'm defeated. I'm wounded. I'm, I'm limping around thinking, you know, what a poor wretch I am. That which I don't want to do is what I do, and what I do is what I don't want to do. Been there? Yeah. All right. Well, the moral persuasion theory, if that's true, means I, I gain and lose, gain and lose, gain and lose my salvation all the time, dependent upon my feelings. And that just doesn't capture the full significance of what it's all about, like what we saw there in the Grunwald painting. Something happened that changed reality. And sometimes I can feel it. And sometimes I don't. And it's not all about me. And that's, to me, one of the great weaknesses of the moral persuasion theory. It is so subjective that it gets lost in the, the flimsiness of our subjectivity. In conclusion, let me say something about the strengths, which I've already touched on. It does emphasize the transformation of the person as part of the salvific event. That's right. When was I saved? Two dates. Uh, 30 A.D. All right. And those moments in which I knew I turned my heart towards God. Both are true. Both are true. And it's actually in a perfect tense. That is, it's a continuation of saved. When was I saved? 30 A.D., that moment, and it still happens to me. And so I should live the changed life. You know, look at all those references that Jesus himself has about the tree that doesn't bear the fruit. Remember just days before he is, he's, he's, he's crucified, he's walking outside the temple, and there's that olive tree and it doesn't bear any fruit. And he said, I'm going to come back there and if it doesn't have any fruit, I'm going to destroy that tree. And that's exactly what he did. By their fruits, you will know who they are. So that's right, and we should emphasize that. Uh, secondly, it does emphasize responsibility. We should take seriously our subjective response to God by practicing the spiritual disciplines, by studying, by corporate worship, by our community, our service, our justice, all this. We should be responsible whether we feel it or not. We should show that love has beget our love, that I belong not to me but to God, and I should show that. And then that the aim of human nature is to be united with God. Give me one minute and then we'll stop. You know... God made us from dust, breathed into us. Our very nephish, our soul, is dependent on it being given to us by God. We cannot create our own soul. Our souls are designed to be in relationship to the, the breath of God. Our hearts are designed to be at one with God. Sin has corrupted that. Our ignorance, our selfishness, our creed, our greed, our cruelty the horrors of human history that plague our memories, our people, and so on. All that has kept us drawing upon the breath of God. It's marred it. But we're still that. We're still God's creatures. The image of God is still in us. It's, it's, it's broken, but not obliterated, I don't think. And so our hearts really are fulfilled in being united with God's love. We really are at our best when we are in love with God. That's when we're at our best. And so this romantic metaphor here that is the basic backdrop to the moral persuasion theory, I think does capture that. And this is a way by which we can give a good testimony of the Christian faith, that we're all designed to be in love. And the greatest ultimate love is the love of God in Christ. And so it is the fulfillment of the human life, human potential. And I think the moral persuasion theory tries to represent this. Okay, one last statement. What I'm trying to do is to is to always ask, what can we learn? I'm also having to realize, what is it that we should reject on a theory? But what is it that we can learn? And I think there's something to be learned from the moral persuasion theory.
at least my version of it. Yeah. But I've been in conversation with people, just like your friend down in Pensacola, was it? Yeah. So this is the only legitimate theory. I'm, I just, I, you're missing something. This, this is not the only way. The experience is big and vast and wonderful. And all these theories help like light coming off of reflected, reflected them and help us better understand. All right, any other comment or question? Okay, next week uh, we're going to look at uh, a broader view of atonement, and it's frankly more aligned with the Eastern Church, and that is what's called the cosmic redemption, how Christ redeems the whole universe. Everything is brought into the redemptive act of God this way. All right, let's pray, and I'll dismiss us after that. Our gracious Lord, love on, O Lord. Entice our hearts. Speak to us in ways that draw our hearts closer to Thee. Enable us, O Lord, to be even more in love with Thee. And we are grateful so much for what You have given us in Christ, our great lover, who is our friend and our redeemer. I ask Your blessings upon us, this congregation, and this I pray in Thy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.